Hebrews 10 this morning. After a long discussion of the new covenant that we've been looking at for a few weeks, the author is transitioning from a focus on how the old covenant is gone because of what Jesus Christ did, to now some thoughts about how what Jesus did should activate us as his people to live a passionate and deliberate and bold Christianity. And so let's look at our text and see what we see there. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1, says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would not, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore... When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, uh, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he said, had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer, excuse me, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the new of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace for you know him who said vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord and again the lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great struggle with sufferings partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated for you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, 
so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Uh, Even though it was apparently the most watched event in television history, I must admit that I did not watch the Super Bowl this year. However, from watching my friends talk about the Super Bowl on Twitter, especially my 49er fan friends, and seeing some of the stats and recaps, it seems as though the 49ers, with all due respect, didn't really show up to play in the first half of the game. Lots of penalties, not a lot of scoring. Their quest for six fell short, and I'm sure for a lot of reasons. This letter that we've been studying for 10 weeks now is all about getting our attention and reminding us to activate our Christianity, not to just drift, not to just, you know, uh, you know, deactivate and kind of exist, but to, to get in the game and get involved and get going where the Lord wants us to go. We keep being invited to show up and get in the game. The author opens the chapter by talking about how sacrifices in the temple were a constant reminder of a person's sin under the law. Every Sabbath, every year, there was a nagging guilt there under the Levitical code. But then, starting in verse 5, we're shown how this incredible and dramatic shift took place as Jesus took up the cross and shed his blood in order to once and forever purge sin from the lives of those who believe. This is what God has always wanted, we're told here in this chapter. He didn't want the slaughter of animals. He wanted redemption for mankind, and Jesus Christ finally made it happen as Messiah. Uh, He says in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And so now... When we think about the cross or when we think about God or we think about the Bible or come into God's house, rather than constantly be reminded of our guilt under the law, we don't have to do that anymore. We instead should realize that what Christ has done has made a new uh, relationship for us. We, we should think about what he's done and think about the monumental, monumental potential that today holds for us as Christians. It would have been a really um, solemn and serious and discouraging thing to bring your lamb into the temple and realize that, yeah, this is a temporary covering, you know, hearkening all the way back to Adam and Eve when the Lord had to slay an animal in order to cover their nakedness. It was this temporary thing. But now we can come into the house of the Lord. We can open up God's word. We can think about Christ or, and we can realize that, okay, today is not about guilt. Today is about the potential that I have as a believer who's in a relationship with the Lord. Verse 10 says that the will of God is that we would be sanctified. We are set aside in order to be a part of what he's doing on the earth. Using the analogy from Sunday, this means that we've been drafted to play in the Super Bowl, spiritually speaking. We've been invited and and asked and, and commissioned to be a part of what God is doing. And we've been put on the field. And I love how Jesus, who made all this possible, says there, hey, I'm showing up to do your will, O God. I'm showing up to get this done. I love that. You know, I mean, he's he's a bold king that we serve. And he says here that, you know, after all of this time and after all this work that God is doing, and it was finally time for the Messiah to come into the world, and he shows up and he says, all right, I'm here. I'm here to get it done. I'm here to do your will, O God. I'm not messing around. You know, the 49ers were on a quest for six Uh, Jesus Christ is on a quest for souls, and he's given each of us a spot on the team. We're not just on the bench, but we're out on the field if we want to be, and and the Lord wants us to be. As Christians, if we're following Christ and imitating him, then there should be a drive to be a part of the will of God in our day-to-day activities. Um, Because 
Every day is a reminder of the potential that God has placed into our lives, the, the potential for growth and for victory and for soul saving. And I know a reminder that was helpful f- for me is that, uh, you know, what the author is getting at in this chapter, he moves into the next verses at, in the next section, in, starting in verse 10, and he talks about how, listen, you're not just purified from sin. That's good and that's necessary. Jesus did that. He purified you. But you're also sanctified. You're also set apart to do something. You're set apart to be a part of God's will and his kingdom. He says, man, you're a player on the field. You're, you're part of, uh, uh, of the, the work that God wants to do. And then after establishing all of that, he gets to the directive of his thoughts, the, the sort of direct uh, teaching to us. Since Christ has revolutionized the relationship between God and man, since there's a will that God is working out in the world today, and since God wants us to be a part of that will, then we should boldly fulfill that purpose and boldly live out the Christian life. We should show up to play and to win when it comes to our spiritual lives. There in verse 19, the text says in that section, therefore, brothers, have boldness. You need to be bold Christians. That's the way you're supposed to play in life. That's the way you're supposed to live out uh, this relationship with God. First, boldness toward God. He says, he says, man, boldly enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. There is no reason to have a distance in your thinking towards God. We, we can be intimate with him. We must be intimate with him. We need to talk with God. We need to learn about God. We need to listen to God. We need to petition him. In the Bible, the Lord himself says, hey, you know what? Sometimes you guys have not because you ask not. And you should boldly come before my throne in the holiest place and, and, and talk to me and ask me and petition me and get to and be with me and, and spend time uh, with me. He says on record that if you knock, I'm going to answer. If you seek, you're going to find. And so we shouldn't ever have a standoffish approach to God, you know, where, well, God's up there and I kind of live out my life. That's not the, the relationship that's depicted in the Bible. The, the relationship that's depicted in the Bible is that God uh, brazenly pursues you to save you and to be involved with your life. And then once we believe that, we need to be bold uh, toward him in our relationship on our end. We should also be bold toward the lost. In Hebrews, there's a lot of talk about judgment. Even in this chapter, we see the fate of those who reject Christ. So, like the apostles in the book of Acts, uh, we should be praying for boldness in our interactions with people who aren't saved. It may be difficult or uncomfortable sometimes to preach. It certainly is for most Christians. But the people around us who aren't believers, we have to pause and realize that they are just moments away from an eternity in hell. I need that reminder, and, and I need to look at people more that way, thinking, okay, yeah, you may be annoying me, or I may be uncomfortable, you know, cold calling you with evangelism, but if I step back and think about eternity, okay, this person in front of me is a few moments away from spending eternity in hell. Well, that should stir up good works of evangelism in our lives. And like that video, I don't know if you were here, but a few weeks ago uh, on Wednesday night, I showed a video of a couple of pastors talking about how, you know, it's hard to be bold towards the lost, but we should do what the apostles did and the disciples did in the book of Acts and pray for each other to have boldness, that they were doing that all the time. And even Paul was saying, hey, pray for me that I would preach the word. We should also be bold toward other believers. Verses 24 and 25 of our text are some of the more famous verses from Hebrews. But it's a good reminder that we should be bold to minister to other Christians. I think sometimes it's easy to... um, to activate the social aspect 
of our relationships with other Christians in the church. We also may need to make sure that we're boldly ministering to one another. Uh, it's a good reminder that we uh, need to be bold to encourage each other. Again, not being timid, but getting out there and doing the will of God by supporting other Christians and warning each other and relating with each other through Jesus Christ, not just through, you know, uh, not just through common uh, common beliefs or common values. But hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna relate to you through Jesus Christ and minister to you and encourage you and exhort you so that we can all be built up and stirred up. So we need to be bold to do that with other believers. And then we should be bold to get spiritual work done. There in verse 25, we're reminded that the day is fast approaching. That was always on the forefront of the New Testament writers' minds, that the day is coming, the end is near. There's a clock that's ticking down, and there's only so much time left to score, as it were. So we should be bold to gain as much yardage as we can before it's all over. Not putting around and, you know, just kind of wasting time. You know, uh, again, using the football analogy, you know, when we're, we're out there making plays, we shouldn't just keep taking a knee. Ah, well, we're a little bit ahead, so we'll take a knee. You know, just run out the clock. I hate that about football. I hate it. You know, it's not, it's not sportsmanlike. But we should realize, okay, the clock's ticking down. The day is approaching. The end is near, both for my life or for, the, for human history as well. And I need to get out there and be bold to get the work done. Boldness is something we need. It's something we should ask the Lord to give us for ourselves and for each other. Because that's the life that's set before us, the battle we've been called into. It's the Super Bowl. It's not the Pro Bowl. Okay, the Pro Bowl is fun, but you know what? Nobody really wants to get hurt in the Pro Bowl, do they? You know, no, you know, it's more about having a good time. You sell some tickets, you know, you get all these fun players together. I saw the I only saw one play of the Pro Bowl, and it was when the who was it? The center switched over and snapped for the quarterback. I don't know why he did that. I don't care. But, you know, so it, it, it's like a big fun exhibition. Yeah, that's not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is the Super Bowl where it's like, hey, man, I'm out there to win it. I'm on a quest here. And if I'm going to snap my ACL, so be it. I'm going to do it getting into the end zone, you know. Uh, that's the idea because the Super Bowl is about victory and domination. And, and that's how the Christian life is portrayed to us. It's not a casual exhibition. It's the real deal. Now, in the next set of verses, starting in verse 26, the author talks about the expectation of judgment a person can have if they reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, as a quick note, doctrinally, since this topic comes up uh, in Hebrews, this is not saying that a person can lose their salvation through sin. It's saying that if a person hears the gospel and willfully chooses to reject the sacrifice of Christ, says, no, I don't, I'm not going to use the sacrifice of Christ to cover me, and says, well, yeah, there is no other sacrifice. You're not going to find anything else out there. You can expect judgment, and you can expect you know, your sins to not be covered. So that's uh, what it's talking about. It says that you can expect judgment and fiery indignation since you're making yourself the adversary of God by rejecting what God has offered you in Jesus Christ. And so this is not talking about a Christian or a believer who commits an act of sin and then losing or forfeiting their salvation. But I was thinking about how we could devotionally apply this section of verses to ourselves, and I was realizing that there are some expectations we can have if we're not living out the Christian life. There's expectations we can have when we are in the will of God, and there's expectations we can have when we're not in the will uh, of God. And there's some rough things we can look forward to, even as believers, if we're choosing not to be a part of what God is trying to do. There are plenty of examples in the Bible. Some of them are major, like Jonah, who willfully wanted to do the opposite of God's will, 
The Lord said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And Jonah said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go the other way. Uh, and there's or a guy like Lot in, in Genesis. He's a great example since he's juxtaposed there with Abraham. God gives him a choice. He says, okay, you know, what do you want to pursue? What do you want to go after? you want to go after me or do you want to go after something else? And Lot wasn't interested in God's will as much as he was his own wealth. And so those are some major examples. Uh, and what they, what they could expect are things that we spiritually can expect. Uh, there's some less outright examples were given as well. Think of when David sinned with Bathsheba. That was a result of him not being in the will of God. He wasn't making godly decisions in his life, and it led to great disaster. Or even Peter there walking on the water. That's a subtle but interesting example of what happens when we take our eyes off Jesus Christ and put our thinking down on the earthly level. And so all of those examples and many more in the scriptures demonstrate that if we aren't diligent about being in the will of God, then we can expect some serious rough patches in life. We can expect some things uh, that, that aren't very pleasant. We don't want to mess around like David or some of these other guys did at times. Instead, we want to run the race to win the race. And the writer of Hebrews knew that. So he closes out the chapter from verses 32 to 39, encouraging us to burn brightly before the Lord. I, I love verse 32. It says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. I love that. When we became Christians, we were illuminated, it says. Uh, let's take that analogy and run with it for a minute. Fluorescent bulbs are everywhere. Obviously, there are benefits and detriments to any different technology, but more and more you're seeing those CFL, the swirly bulbs, uh, instead of incandescent bulbs. When you first turn on those fluorescent bulbs, uh, they're a little bit dim, and then they, get, they warm up and they get brighter. That's kind of what the spiritual life is like. We start in darkness, then we're illuminated, and we become what the Bible refers to as baby Christians. Uh, and we go f going from off, darkness, to on is a big difference, but there's still a greater potential brightness for us as we move from the milk of the word to the meat of the word and become more mature and discover our calling and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and move forward with Christ. And we're being more and more illuminated. We get brighter and brighter uh, as we are conformed more into the Lord's image. But over time, if we're not properly attending to our Christianity, then we can start to dim out a little bit. I've got a fluorescent bulb in a back room at my house and it barely works it's like a it's like a spare room off of my uh, patio and so I don't you know I don't use it hardly at all and so I don't replace the bulb but it takes forever to turn on I turn on the light and man it sometimes it's 30 seconds for the thing even to turn on when it does it flickers off and on and it's super dim and the edges of the bulb because it's older all blackened and darkened and that darkness is spreading towards the center uh, I'm lazy so I don't change it uh, but that, that doesn't have to happen in our relationship with the Lord, but if we're not diligent, that is what happens. That's what happens to us as an illuminated believer, um, whether it's the connection between God and us getting debris and, and not being as tight and snug as it used to be. Maybe the edges of our lives are getting darkened by apathy or carnality. Sometimes we you know, get into a pattern where we flash on and off. We flicker brightly for a little bit, but then, you know, when something's not going on, we're just kind of turned off and not, not shining, uh, just being inconsistent with our, in our walk with the Lord. Or something, sometimes there's something wrong with the ballast of our lives. A light ballast is what activates and regulates a, a fluorescent bulb. A few years ago, Edison came out. They had a program where they were going out to, to, to businesses, and they said, hey, for free, we will change out all the ballasts in your uh, fluorescent tubes here. Um, in, in your fixtures. 
And we didn't have to pay for it. We said, yeah, sure. So they put in a more efficient ballast. It saved energy. But the bulbs actually, we were amazed, shine, the same bulbs shine much brighter. I think we even took a picture at one point because they changed one in one end of the hall and not the one in the other end of the hall. And it was really amazing. The light was whiter. It was brighter. I mean, it was a surprising thing. We didn't even realize those bulbs could be um, as bright as that. Sometimes our, in our spiritual lives, we swap out the Lord as our ballast and replace him with some earthly pursuit or some other thing. That's what Lot did, and it ended rather poorly for him. But it's interesting to just kind of think about for a minute. The bulb is the bulb. Uh, it, it has potential for great brightness. Uh, our spiritual lives have unlimited potential in the hands of God. But the danger is that we don't keep the connection between him and us clean and snug, or, or we let the edges of our lives start to dim out and get blackened up by the world. Or there's a danger of swapping out what activates and regulates our thinking and our decisions and our activities, that ballast in our hearts. We need to make sure that we've got a proper ballast. We want to stay illuminated, bringing God pleasure, being a part of his will, bringing light into a dark world. That's what a good bulb does. That's what a good Christian does. And if we go back to our football analogy, we're on a quest. We're not, we're not in it just to you know, kick around and have some fun. I mean, we're on a quest for something. We want to play to win. And so today, let's show up, live out our Christianity. Let it be said of us, I have come to do your will, O God. And let's put it all on the line so that we can gain ground and take hold of what we've been set apart for. Amen? Amen. All right.